Shalom, shalom, friends. It's wonderful to see you all. Thank you so much for being here, um, for our learning of the philosophers today and what they might mean for us today in our own uh, ways, personal ways. And um, we're going to start with a little poll question that will lead into Noam Chomsky. Is human language universal? Yes, our brains already are, are not blank slates, and we have universal rules built into them for language. Option two, we're blank slates, and engagement with different languages are fundamentally different on a cognitive level. Maybe this is something you've thought a lot about. Maybe you've thought very little about. Here's to see where people fall out on this. Is human language universal? Option one, yes, our brains already are not blank slates and have universal rules built into them for language. Option two, we're blank slates and engagement with different languages are fundamentally different on a cognitive level. I will be curious in the chat if you want to discuss that at all, or we could save it for later. Okay, let's see our results here. Wow, pretty even split. 43% um, say yes, our brains are already already are not blank slates and have universal rules built in, into them for language. 57% were basically blank slates and engagement with different languages are fundamentally different on a cognitive level. All right, here we go, friends. Let's dive in here. Are human values at the core fundamentally universal and only divided by specific language and expression? Should behavior only be determined as ethical if one acts according to universal principles and not selectively out of self-interest? Noam Chomsky was born in 1928 to Jewish immigrants, both of whom were active in the local religious community in Philadelphia and believed strongly importance of education. Chomsky recalls that they were both heavily involved in the revival of Hebrew and insistent upon strong educational foundations so that the Jews in their community would be capable of robust free thought. As such, even though he now identifies as non-religious, he still finds some of his ethics rooted in Judaism, such as an assertion found in his Haftorah portion from Zechariah, Lo b'chayo v'lo b'koach ki im beruchi not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of the divine. This perhaps serves as good support for Chomsky's commitment to pacifism. By the way, if you want to know where he uses that quote, maybe he uses it other places as well. But when I had a video interview with Chomsky a few years ago, he dropped that Hebrew perfectly 
um, in this, even though he's, he's secular for almost all his life. Uh, he very quickly dropped that quote from Zachariah in, in its original Hebrew. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Uh, you, By the way, you can watch that interview if you just type in Yanklowitz Chomsky. I'm sure that's the only thing that'll come up. Having first made a name for himself in the field of linguistics, some call him the father of the modern field. Chomsky is now one of the best-known public intellectuals in the English-speaking world, having branched out into political activism, social criticism, analytical philosophy, and even cognitive science. To date, he has written over 100 books and been engaged in debates with many other significant thinkers. Just to take a moment to name what some of you likely already know, Chomsky has strong opinions perceived by many to be anti-Israel. To borrow the words of one of his most famous intellectual nemesis, Alan Dershowitz says that Chomsky hates America, hates Israel, and hates Western democracy. <laughs> That's a pretty concise summary of what most of the controversies are around. As always, we're going to do our best to thoughtfully engage with the ideas that Noah Chomsky puts forward, even if some of us don't agree with all of them. Chomsky actually insists that his activism, his political philosophy, and linguistics are inextricably connected. One of his major ideas in the field of linguistics sure does sound like a broadly applicable philosophy, that of linguistic universals, chiefly universal grammar. Chomsky believes that there is innate or a priori knowledge built into the human brain that is not dependent on one's native language, and that it manifests as a universal grammar one can identify in all human languages. This universal grammar enables human beings to have a shared understanding of things, even as we express things quite differently in French, Fijian, or Finnish sign language. <laughs> Some of us who, who know or are learning other languages may question if that's true to our experience. But to give an illustrative example, most would agree that hunger is a natural sensation universal to all human beings. We, we suspect all human beings experience something called hunger in different ways, but in some very similar ways. Our body tells us we need to eat. And because that's so basic, all languages must have a way to relay that information. How do we use words to convey to someone else that we're hungry? My three-year-old does it differently than my 11-year-old, does it differently than my, my father, <laughs> you know? How do we convey that we're hungry? In English, we might say something like, I'm hungry, which sounds ridiculous to speakers of other languages. Hunger is hopefully temp temporary. So why would we express hungriness as if it's an integral or immutable part of our identity, right? I am hungry. What do you mean? That's core to my being? <laughs> Other languages might say, I have hunger, or even hunger is upon me. While in American Sign Language, one visually signals an empty upper digestive tract. All of these manners of expression are certainly different and might contribute to different relationships with hunger. But in this case, most of us would likely agree with Chomsky that the meaning of hunger is universal even if its expression is not. Even if we don't know anywhere near the majority of the world's languages, we would probably still feel safe betting that hunger 
is more or less the same around the world. But where are the limits? We know that many cultures have conceptual words that are generally agreed to be untranslatable, though we, of course, try to translate them. This is actually one of the great challenges in Jewish learning, working with ancient texts, ancient knowledge, ancient language, and trying to find a way to express it in modern terms, navigating modern sensibilities. But what about those difficult-to-define things that do at least seem universal, like peace, fairness, friendship, love? Are these universal phenomena of how we experience love or how we long for peace or our experience of friendship or our desire for fairness? Chomsky famously debated our old friend, perhaps frenemy, (laughs) Foucault on topics of power, justice, and human nature. Foucault questioned whether there was such a, a thing as an unchanging notion of justice or injustice, arguing instead that our understanding of these concepts is a product of the kind of societies we live in, right? There is no notion of justice, going back to Steve Chauvin's great comment a few weeks ago. There is no universal notion of justice that all societies share throughout the eras, right? Justice is such a relative term in different time periods, and different cultures, even within the family of what's fair in my family, who should get the last candy bar. We've got a lot of arguments in my house as to what's fair, the youngest one, the one who uh, likes it the most, right? The one who found it, <laughs> the one who bought it, right? Whenever I enter the argument, <laughs> Chomsky disagreed with this so fervently that he interrupted Foucault during their debate. And Chomsky interrupted the debate with uh, Foucault and said, I think that there is some sort of an absolute basis ultimately residing in fundamental human qualities in terms of which a real notion of justice is grounded, right? So we might be getting a little abstract, friends. So let me bring us back down to earth a little bit. (laughs) Um, So Foucault, I mean, to say it kind of simplistically, Foucault um, really embraces the relativity of values. Chomsky thinks there's something universal and absolute, right? That there is something called fairness. It's in our brain. It's in our language. It's in our grammar rules. There is something called justice or fairness, and it's fundamental to being a human that we are connected to that universal enterprise. Foucault thinks that these ideas are so fluid, so tenuous, that our notions of it are so different that it's hard to even say we're talking about the same thing, one might say. He further argued that while existing justice systems embody all manner of injustices, they are groping towards, that's a quote, an ideal of universal, true human justice. Think also of the word God. I mean, the word God is almost meaningless today, right? Like, does a Christian and a Muslim and a Jew, not to mention an ultra-Orthodox Jew versus a secular Jew, um, does a Hindu, uh, do they mean anything similar when they say God? One might say yes. Actually, there's some notion that there's something beyond us, potentially in control, potentially all-seeing or all-powerful, potentially um, um, relatable or not relatable, depending on our theology, right? And we might have such different theologies that when we say the word God, we actually mean something fundamentally different. In fact, Some people who might say they believe in some version of God, some others might call them an atheist because they say, oh, that type of God you believe in is not really a God at all, right? And so 
is there any notion of God that actually has any universally agreed upon ideas? I, I would suggest probably not. We, we just assume we're talking about the same thing. When on the dollar bill, it tells in God we trust. <laughs> well, what does it mean trust? What does it mean God? I mean, these are complicated ideas. Anyways, th this theme of universality also shows up in his critiques and prescriptions with regards to political power. Skopsky holds that the ethical standards that an actor applies to himself should be the same as he is willing to see all other actors in a system act out, and that he should in practice allow them to act out. He, he argues that we engage in elaborate rhetorical choreography to justify a lopsided view of justice, whether in our favor or to the disadvantage of others. We're going to make more sense of what I just said in a moment. He says that the American political system, for example, is chiefly concerned with preserving the financial interests of corporations. And as such, the options that voters are given at the ballot box are largely superficial. He says, look, Democrats and Republicans are both funded in elections by big corporate money. And so and that, that guides our country and our country's interests and, and decisions, those corporate interests. And as such, there's a superficial experience of voting where we think we're voting for something vastly different that he says is ultimately superficial in, in its difference. Instead of being presented substantive opinions, political discourse tends to obsess about language and small details, he argues, which serve only as a distraction rather than focus on the matters that deeply address our national pursuits. Globally and historically, Chomsky claims the ruling class limits the political options of democracy by concocting language to define their financial interests as a moral baseline that is unquestionably legitimate. So essentially, he's saying that um, our options when we vote are minuscule in terms of their difference. But because of the language of our social discourse, we've come to believe they're totally different. Right. Are Biden and Trump fundamentally the same with a slightly different flavor or are they so radically different? We've been come to believe they're radically different. Right. Are um, whatever Congress people are going against each other, senators. Right. Are they really, um, uh, to uh, you know, uh, very entangled with um, financial constraints in, from their funders as such that they basically fall out relatively similar on issues? Or do we really believe it's a, it's a fundamentally different choice? He gives the example of what is referred to as the responsibility to protect doctrine. In 2005, the United Nations adopted it as a political principle defined as an ethical mandate for the international community to take action to prevent genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity wherever they may be happening. Sounds reasonable, right? Surely Chomsky isn't in favor of crimes against humanity, right? And that's precisely the point. The language adopted by the UN is too vague and inscrutable to be clearly actionable, but whatever actions are taken in pursuit of it are given the appearance of being morally cleansed in public imagination. N NATO's bombing of Serbia in 1999 was billed as a way of mediating the crisis in Kosovo. But this contrasts significantly with what the average person typically imagines humanitarian intervention to be, like feeding starving children. 
Furthermore, why should the responsibility to protect be invoked to legitimate intervention in Serbia, but not in similar or worse crises in Africa? Where and when the international community chooses to act in the name of humanitarianism, it is often the case, Chomsky argues, that it does so only to protect its financial interests. Wow, bombed, bomb dropped. You know, so Chomsky wants to expose this, this, uh, um, these lies. So here's what, in, here's Chomsky's own words. Nothing serious is contemplated about the worst catastrophe in Af- Africa, if not the world, Eastern Congo, where multinationals are once again being accused of violating a UN resolution against illicit trade of valuable minerals and thus funding the murderous conflict. There's no thought of invoking even the most innocuous prescriptions of the responsibility to protect, to respond to massive starvation in poor countries. The UN recently estimated that the number of those facing hunger has passed a billion, a billion, while the World Food Program of the UN has just announced major cutbacks of aid because the rich countries are reducing their meager contributions, giving priority to bailing out banks. Years ago, UNICEF reported that 16,000 children die every day from lack of food, many more from easily preventable diseases. The figures are much higher now, he writes. In Southern Africa alone, it is Rwanda-level killing, not for 100 days, but every day. At first glance, it might seem that Chomsky's basic idea about ethical universalism is perfectly Jewish. After all, didn't Hillel the Elder famously summarize the Torah as that which is hateful to you, do not do to another? Yes, and the end of that quote often gets left out is a command to go study Torah. And that is where we find some complexity, if not complication, beyond just don't do what's hateful. For example, Chomsky's pacifism might be noble to a significant extent. Judaism is not different from from some other religions in that while we are forbidden from taking the life of another person under most circumstances, if we know that another is setting out to kill us, we have a duty to kill him in order to prevent our own demise. While the language most of us know this by is in the Gemara, it comes from a passage in the Torah itself that says essentially that one isn't liable for killing a home invader with the presumption that anyone entering your home with the purpose to steal must also be willing to maim or murder you to get his way. It's difficult to comprehend an ethic that says we must do nearly anything to save a life, including in situations of self-defense, potentially taking the life of another. But the Torah is fine-tuned to shades of gray Chomsky is not such a fan of. However, it's not a language game for the Torah. There are real exceptions or sites of nuance that are necessary for an ethical system to be truly ethical. In many places in the rabbinic literature, as well as in other scholarship, We've tried for thousands of years to accept what might seem like contradiction. With one Midrash in Shemot Rabbah, the sages take up the task of reconciling the contradictions of Torah and of human life by citing the giving of the Torah all at once. Birth and death happen all at once. Sickness and healing in the same moment. And so too, do we find situations where the right thing in one context inevitably contradicts appropriate behavior in another. 
One example they give is that of Yibum, hence the picture we're looking at here. Yibum, in that very long section in, in Leviticus, listing out all of the people you're not supposed to have sexual relations with, one of those people is your brother's wife. That a, um, a man should not have sexual relations with his brother's wife. But if he happens to be your older brother, and he unfortunately leaves behind a childless widow, we know that Leverite marriage is viewed as a real act of justice, in that it is seen as enabling the deceased husband to have a child through his brother. So there are even more direct examples of, if not con actual contradiction, than hierarchies within ethics that seem like contradictions in practice. Jews aren't supposed to eat pork. Jews aren't supposed to eat on Yom Kippur. Those are the sort of basic laws that are so obvious that Gentiles will sometimes castigate Jews who don't hold by them. Yet Jewish law spells out in fine detail how exactly to go about eating pork on Yom Kippur. If you're pregnant and feel an overwhelming, unyielding need to eat some, for example, the Talmud in Yoma 82a says the pregnant woman should eat pork on Yom Kippur just because she has a craving as a pregnant woman, an overwhelming craving. This isn't hypocrisy. This is a reflection of our valuing of life over any number of other values, even strong values that relate to communal cohesion. We don't always hold everyone in our community to the same standards because people have different abilities, different needs, and unique relationships with the divine, even as we share a larger covenant with generalized norms. One of the interesting features of Jewish law is that even though it's designed for a particular people, it also provided a simpl simplified legal system for other peoples in the Noahide laws. The seven commandments, right? People talk about the 613 biblical mitzvot or the 10 commandments, but the seven commandments that fall are incorporated within them, can be seen as a universal morality of sorts. While Jews in traditional communities may need to take time out of their day to make sure a new sweater wasn't made with a forbidden mixture of fibers and to diligently search out and destroy all chametz before Passover, the non-Jewish nations are told, according to this, no murder, no stealing, no eating the flesh of a living of an animal while it's alive, no blasphemy, no sexual immorality, no idol worship. That's it. And everyone must establish courts. And the establishing of courts, that last one, the rabbis say, includes hundreds of other laws as well. But the definitions of some of these prohibitions are debated within the Jewish tradition. And it's obvious that there are cultures in the world that do not see some of these prohibitions as problematic at all. But they can still serve as a baseline for how we might conceive of justice and morality for all human beings. Friends, to conclude here, Jewish law seems far more comfortable with expressing universality with respect to a lotase, right, um, meaning a prohibition, as can be seen in the statement of Hillel the Elder, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto another. But even within that, we know there are exceptions. Perhaps underneath the complexities of law, there is some sort of universal truth that we as humans can only grope our way towards, though it's, it remains to be seen whether it is what Chomsky thinks of as justice. That was a lot of topics in terms of language, 
values, um, politics. So let's go in any direction folks want to go in. Hi, Cheryl. Good morning. Um, one thing that you just said at the very end, I was just talking about this weekend uh, when we read Yitro and we read um, the Ten Commandments. And I said, you know, eight of those are negative. Hmm. You know, the, the only two that are positive are honoring your father or mother and, and observing Shabbat. Everyone, all the other ones are do nots. So when you just said that, that just resonated with me because we were just talking about that recently. And I guess, you know, um, I don't want to regard that as a glass half full that we're, you know, the glass half empty people because we have, we, we respond better to negatives. But um, I just was thinking about that because of what we just read this with this Parsha. Awesome. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, that's very interesting. In fact, um, what what is the role of law? Um, few of us might say the role of law is to create the good society. I think we understand creating the good society to be something that goes beyond the legalistic realm. We tend to think of law as preventing or prohibiting inappropriate behavior. So if we think of American law, it's not going to say be a good parent, right, or be a great citizen. Right, and then spell out ways to do that. It doesn't require us to vote, even though being voting is a responsibility. It doesn't require us to, you know, uh, take our kids to a baseball game, even though that's a nice thing to do. Right? It tells us all these things we can't do. And as Cheryl points out, the Ten Commandments goes in a similar direction. And interesting, those two exceptions you point out there around um, Shabbat and parents. I guess those are viewed as so fundamental. The need for rest. Uh, to preserve our minds and bodies, and the need to preserve families and ensure that parents are given the respect that they deserve um, in most cases. <laughs> um, and so thank you, Cheryl, for pointing that out. And I think, um, you know, on those low tassies, on those prohibitions, do we think that they are built into human mind or not? Interesting enough, a lot of the commentators say that the conflict with Cain and Abel happens because humans weren't told that murder was wrong, right? We just assume that fundamental to the human mind is a basic morality that killing someone is wrong. But we might challenge that assumption. If we were never taught that in school by our parents, right, in, in our houses of worship, wherever we learned this idea and learned it over and over, if we weren't told that we're going to go to prison, would we have known that killing someone is fundamentally wrong, bar, you know, barring the few exceptions where we might justify it? Um, so, you know, so are those prohibitions um, or stealing? We have such different understandings of stealing. Uh, we, we, if we oversimplify it, we think there's one thing called stealing. Everyone agrees. Right. But it's not clear. Or take adultery. Right. The prohibition against adultery. That's also a sentence. When are we when are we married? When are we not married? When are we divorced? When does that happen? Some people think, well, I've moved out of my partner's house. Yeah, we didn't finish the paperwork, but we live in different houses now, so we're divorced. And I can sleep with anyone I want. Other people think, until the legal paperwork is done. Then you go to Jewish law, and it says, I don't care if you figured out, you filled out American paperwork. Did you give a get? Did you receive a get? Right? And and until that, uh, you know, the, the religious divorce document. And so... Um, even the notion of when adultery can or might occur or when marriage might occur. And so 
great debates around these things. Anyway, Carol, that's a very interesting point. Do you want to respond think, to that at all? Or? I just wanted to say so, one more thing about, you know, Cain and Abel and, you know, uh, I, I guess um, I was trying to go through my, in my head, think of, was, was, is there a more positive way of saying, instead of do not, do not murder, is there, is there a positive way of, you know, which would not be three words, do not murder. It would um, be something longer because you would have to explain why human life is, you know, dear and cherished and you shouldn't, you know, I mean, I, oh, here I go with the negative, but I, 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 I'm just trying to think of ways that they could have been the positive Ten Commandments. <laughs> so. Oh, interesting, interesting, right. Ways of spelling of it out. I mean, yourself. if you're teaching your children something right. about murdering or stealing or, you know, those, let's let's just stick with those two. You know, I don't want to go into adultery and coveting and all that kind of stuff. Although coveting is something that children should learn very early, um, mm. that just because someone else has something doesn't mean you should have it. But uh, I, I mean, I guess I've, you know, laws tend to be negative, not positive. That's that's the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Very, very interesting. And you know, the coveting one, many people treat it as it's, you know, kind of Puritan. It's kind of, um, you know, who's capable of that? We think back to Jimmy Carter. I have, I have. Well, I mean, that was lust, but I have sinned in my heart, whatever the case is here, whatever that case there was, but. Um, but the truth is, as, as you point out, I mean, how important is this to teach our children and ourselves, right, um, of, around issues of jealousy, around issues of unfulfilled desire uh, and, and uh, insatiability? So, yeah, could we have achieved? It's a profound question. Could we have achieved some of the same goals with positive language instead of negative prohibitions? Very interesting. Um, and just okay. one more thing. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm, I don't no, need to monopolize. Yeah. But um, what you just said about, you know, not you shouldn't do unto others that. But the Christian version is do unto others or, you know, as you would have be done unto yourself. So that isn't that the Christian version of it as opposed to the negative that once again. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. OK. It looks like Ed wants to jump in on that point right there. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, yeah, I, I, I can appreciate the, the negative parts as being somewhat in need of uh, exceptions and clarifications. But the, the positive one, if you will, is um, still as complicated, is love your neighbor. And then they added, as yourself, okay, well, if you don't love yourself, then you're able to not love your neighbor or, you know, how's that go? Because in the Christian groups where we discuss love your neighbor, uh, the first debate is, uh, well, who's your neighbor? And that goes anywhere from the entire world and everybody in it to your family, to your loved one. Uh, and then it gets more complicated when you add love your neighbor what love are you talking about? Love like my children, love of my pet, love of my you know spouse, um, or just the kind of I love nature. Uh, what do you mean? And then when you put them together, sort of a higher level of problem of defining it. So you don't really get a firm grasp, I, I guess, whether it's negative or positive, because 
you know, it's the, it's the same thing with, um, you know, honor and peace and love. Uh, there, you can put the negative on it of hate and war, but in either way, it, it still is kind of, kind of confusing as to what do you mean? Yeah, thank you, Ed. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And some people might say that's the weakness of such religious, you know, verses is that they can be used for any agenda you want. Other people might say that's the richness of religious text in that it gives you thousands of years of commentary and debate and discussion. And so um, do we want these black and white teachings or do we want ones that give us the wiggle room to kind of navigate them? and make sense of them. Who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love them and have you know a rich conversation about that? Yeah, very interesting. Thank you, Ed. Hi, good morning. Uh, good morning. Two unrelated things. Uh, number one, in the field of sports, there is a universal need to score more points than the other team in order to win. The sub A under that is how do we achieve that goal to score more points? Sunday, the Chiefs or the 49ers will have different ways of trying to win the game. So there's a universality, but there's also a difference in, in how to achieve the end. The second unrelated point, and, and th this is almost a, a trivia type of thing. I always thought that the first 10 commandments were actually 11. Because I think of number one as, as A and B. A is, mm -hmm. I am the Lord your God that you shall love with all your heart, your soul, your might. And you should not try to honor or love any other God. Uh, so while there, there, there is no Hosanna related to that, like, ah, epiphany, I know everything now. It, it It's just an observation. And I would attach to that, if I were God, God forbid, <laughs> uh, I would say, go ahead, look at some of the other gods. You'll come back to me, but go ahead, that's fine. <laughs> See what's out there. That's all. Okay, there's the good, there's the good um, Amish, Steve, that thinks everyone should go out and explore, right, the world and, um, and, and find what's right. That's good. So as you know, Steve, um, there's great debate around around what are the Ten Commandments. Some of them are clear, but some of them are not. And if you look at a Christian Bible and a Tanakh, you'll see that the verses are broken up differently in terms of how the, the count works. And even among the Jewish commentators, they disagree on how the count works over there and how to break up the verses. So you're right. Um, the fact that you can find 11 um, is not surprising, or someone else might find nine. So interesting and it's not even so clear why the ten commandments are so significant in fact jewish tradition wanted to downplay them um you know these ten not to make them so central you know among the vast other concerns uh that go that go beyond them to the extent that there's still a debate in jewish literature around whether to stand or sit when the ten commandments are read cheryl in your synagogue that you, you heard where you heard Yitro, did people stand or sit for, for when they read the Ten Commandments? Okay, interestingly, now, well, we stood, we stood, but Rabbi Kaplan, uh, a blessed memory, he said you don't have to stand. So uh, I think it's up to the Mardatra. Oh, okay. 
very interesting. That's conservative Judaism for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, conservative Judaism, very informed of the tradition and giving wiggle room for different right. approaches. And um, and so, uh, yeah, and so, yeah, so anyways, it's very interesting uh, what you bring up there. And now to your point around sports, one of the reasons that sports are so successful, you might say, is because of how strictly rules are adhered to, right? The rules that contain the sport enable this container um, for people to to um, have a shared assumption of what they're doing. So you said they're, they both want to win, but they're going to take very different approaches, very different approaches within a limp with within many limits, because there's a hundred things they can't do, and the fact that they can't do that creates a whole space for creativity um, around the need, you know, to figure out how to, at all costs, you know, win that game. Um, and, you know, and yet still given those rules, every, every call by the refs, of course, get argued and yelled at who would want that job of constantly being yelled. And what ref was like, okay, you yelled at me. I'm going to change my decision. You know, it's like even these professionals, their entire lives, they've been playing these sports cannot stop from yelling about a call. Right. As if it's going to make an impact. But anyways, yes, yeah, so Steve, thanks for that. Hi, Sarah. We're, we're going we're gonna to move to you. Well, I love how so many things are circling around here. So um, as soon as Steve started talking about sports, I thought, oh, but who determines really what a foul is and what's legal huh. and what's not legal? Where, what, where, what deserves a penalty? So it took me back to Cheryl and Yitro. And, you know, dividing up all of these judges that we could turn to, you know, we've trained these, these individuals to make these decisions, and yet they have to get together, and now they have to look at a little screen, and then they can debate some more. Very, very Jewish thing. So they argue with each other about what's real here, and, and is this how we should interpret this particular action? That was fascinating to me. The other is going back to Ed and the notion of love. And our first commandment is to love our God. And is that how we should interpret love from that incredible place of connection to that which we cannot really know and yet feel such deep longing and and connection. So um, those were some of the thoughts that have come up for me in this little discussion. And I happen to love Noam Chomsky. So there you go. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Um, awesome. Good. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, Aglaia may be replying to you. So I see her hand just went up. <laughs> but let's move over to Aglaia. Hi. Sorry, I can't have my um, camera on That's today, okay. though. But I was actually just going to like um, throw in there because I'm like doing 20 things at once. So, but I was going to throw in there um, one of um, the discussions. If I like bring like have this discussion with people about gun control and everything, and whether or not laws actually are effective at keeping people from going out and buying guns and stuff like that, because well, people break the law of the, all of the time. Well, then it's one of those um, issues about, well, how many people actually get their sense of morality from the idea that I could get punished very severely for this. 
And so because of that, though, is the debate really about, well, is it about, well, are laws necessarily what works or is it a you know, question of after like a generation or so, will people actually learn something because enough people have been punished severely for um, crimes, violent crimes that involve guns? Um, another thing, though, but if we want to take it from a more positive um, direction, though, um, I don't know. I've used this quote um, from John Donne about any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. Now, John Donne has all kinds of issues and everything like that. So I'm really sorry if anybody is offended that I brought him up. But yeah, so that's another, you know, you could take it either way, though. However, though, I'm just kind of um, I'm kind of iffy about it because of the fact that well but then there's also the other issue you might feel like you're involved but are you really present to have that emotional connection so is the punishment actually more of a motivator than you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very interesting thank you aglaya and i think that i we probably have an interesting debate here on the issue of legislating drug use some people think we should limit the supply um, some th people think we should limit the demand. How effective has um, criminalizing uh, drug use been? Um, <laughs> and um, I, I suspect we'd have a range of views here. Um, and maybe it would be different if we're talking about different kinds of drugs um, or different ages. Um, but let me give another example of frustration for me. One of the campaigns we've been involved with um, with Valley Beit Midrash, his partnership with the Elie Wiesel Foundation for Humanity has been to combat this we genocide against the Uyghur people, which many of you are probably familiar with in the Northwest region of China, talking about millions of people. And in 2022, the Senate actually passed legislation that banned imports from forced labor of Uyghur people. That said, they, it's gotten completely worked around. How does it get worked around? One is minimum cost of imports. Those things don't go through the, under the scrutiny. Second is the repurposing or repackaging of imports. So, for example, all these toothbrushes that come uh, and, you know, and other things like that that come from forced labor in the Uyghur region, then go to Italy get repackaged as a new brand, a new company, and then get imported into the U.S. So it's like, all right, we want to stop genocide, never again. And we stand up and we get our legislators to pass, no imports, and then still, like you, the law is like completely ineffective at being able to achieve the goal. And this happens often, that we think the political goal is the end goal, where the politics can only get you so far sometimes. You know, um, so how do we create a universal spiritual consciousness of compassion, a universal spiritual consciousness of solidarity, of, of care for each other. That's in many ways may amorphous, more amorphous, but also more lasting than trying to get some import ban that is, you know, largely ineffective. So yes, um, yes. So, okay, let me pause there. Oh, here's Matthew. Okay, you want to unmute Matthew? There he is. All right. I'm, I'm in the car, so I just, you can see me, but I'm not going to comment. I'm trying to not kill people. Universal <laughs> desire. Okay. Universal desire to not kill people. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Right. And even there, I mean, we, we, you know, we seem pretty clear as a society that if you go drink 
I don't know, fill in the blank, five champagnes or three screwdrivers or six beers, and then you go drive, you've done something violent and reckless in society, right? But um, it's also relatively universal that people are texting while they're driving. And I, I believe the last study I saw said that texting is actually even more of a distraction than being under the alcoholic influence or equal or more. And yet we don't seem, you know, universally committed yet to that being a violent act. Um, okay, I'm pulled over now, but a okay. comment. <laughs> Think of the driverless car. Okay. The issue of you don't want to kill someone when you're driving. How do you program human decisions into a driverless car? Right. And for example, you are driving and something happens. You have a choice. You can pull to the side and smash your car, save other people's lives, your airbag will go up, you'll be fine. Or you could continue and maybe hit the person in front of you. How do you value, how do you determine those decisions? More difficult case, your brakes fail, you can hit a group of children in the crosswalk, or you can hit the elderly person at the bus stop. Which way do you turn your car? And this is one of the great debates within driverless cars. By the way, there are laws in Germany that now codify the programming of who gets killed first or who gets killed last. But if you think about it, you know, texting, there are laws and the only way to enforce them is universally is to arrest everyone coming out of the waste management open who's been drinking, do a breathalyzer test on every car coming out. Don't pick out the one who's, do a breathalyzer test because you don't have to drive because there's free Uber and Lyft if you had too much to drink. So very interesting. Thank you. The, uh, uh, thank you very, yeah. Lost very the topic, but yeah. we, no, we got no, to where well, we are, so I stopped the car. We're all over the place uh, on topic. And I think that that's uh, an interesting contribution in terms of some of the complicated decisions that have to be made today in medical ethics, in, uh, in AI, in other technologies that are being developed, how we value lives differently. And of course, in, in warfare, I, I mean, raging debates right now around how many enemies can you kill to to save one citizen? Um, and uh, how are uh, uh, you know? Uh, uh, and who is a civilian? And who is an armed soldier? And you know? Um, and so this is uh, these, this is one of the pressing issues. Of course, it touches on not only end of life and warfare and medical ethics, but also the abortion debate, the various views on what a life is and when a life begins, and that's continues to be a raging topic that's not going anywhere anytime soon, even though people are very adamant it's conception or it's birth or it's, you know, some, something in between. Um, so, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And if there is something universally built into us as humans that says don't kill, how come some of us relate to different aspects of those debates differently? Is that because of our cultures? Is that because of our upbringing? Is that because of our, our, our brain development? that we consider this murder, but not that murder. So one of the things that I didn't spell out that Chomsky was arguing over there is that 
on the universalizing principle, right? I, that he connects that our brains have a universality to them. Our languages have universality. And he thinks our values should have a universality such that America should not do anything militaristically that any other country is not allowed to do also. That's one of his major critiques. So if America says, you know, we want to reduce nuclear weapons in the world, America needs to destroy all its nukes. Well, America might say, oh, well, we can't because we're the we're protectors of the world and there's an arms race and we have to have more than China or more than Russia. And, and, and Chomsky says, look, if the ethic is to have none, right, we have to do what we think we're telling everyone to do and there's no other political concerns. And, um, and we can't kill more people in a war just because we're more powerful, right? We have to do what we think uh, we would expect other countries to do as well, that ultimately we have to um, create a standard and live by that same standard. And we don't think of governments that way. Um, we don't think of war that way for the most part. We tend to think of it as doing whatever it takes to protect yourself, doing whatever it takes to win, you know, is oftentimes an orientation. And, you know, and he's kind of challenging that a little bit in part of his critique of, of American militarism. Okay, Aglaia, back to you. Okay, let the record show is trying not to speak twice today also, okay? Okay, record, uh, record noted. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, though, but um, I've, all right, so I struggled with the, um, with the poll question because of the fact that, you know, I can see both, all right? Now, here's part of the problem, though, that I'm having with, you know, just putting it as, okay, either there's a universal, you know, language and everything like that, or there's not, um, you know, either is, you know, or, I mean, for take it though, even if there is a universal kind of, um, I guess, um, well, just for lack of a better word, language that all of us have, like all of us were born with and everything, well, then there are other factors, there's so many other factors that are going to be involved. Um, for instance, so I can see, um, and I really hate to use this as an example, though, but what's your emotional investment in the situation? Are you going to be, and also, are you triggered by fear? Are you triggered by, like, whatever? Um, what are, I mean, it's not just also how you were raised or, like, what society you came from, though, because there are also all kinds of things that happen in the knee-jerk moment that affect things. So I don't know if anybody else cares about that aspect but you know thank you anyone want to weigh in on that hi lauren hi um just a question with chomsky against the allies ha having um fought the nazis i mean he's he's such a pacifist that he thought that no matter what you just stand back my short answer is i don't know how he he'd answer that he's a complicated person he definitely criticized the nazis over and over again i mean i hope everybody would um, he did, however, consistently defend the freedom of speech of Nazis um, and even um, defended this one famous Holocaust denier, his right to express himself in ways that left a bad taste in many Jews' mouths as well. You know, I don't know if he was using someone else's language or his own in regards to what he would refer to as the Palestinian occupation. Um, and talk about, and he used the phrase Judeo Nazis, which also left a very uh, bad taste in people's mouth. Um, and so he, 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 some have even called him kind of like 
I mean, I, I, I think you could say I'm fairly, but like a defender of the neo-Nazi movement because he was so vocal in the right of freedom of speech. Um, but in terms of his relationship to pacifism and the Nazis, that's an interesting question, which I wish, because uh, he was, he was very, I mean, he was born in 1928. So he was a teenager, um, I mean, or just younger, you know, during all this. And, um, and he was an immigrant. Um, you know, an Ashkenazi, you know, or, or his parents were. And so far his pacifism goes in that regard, I, I, I don't recall, maybe someone else has, has read, has read on that. I mean, I can't imagine his belief was, was do nothing to stop the Nazis. Um, that would be hard to imagine. So anyways, anyways, great question, uh, Lauren. And, um, today we see some similar, kind of debates happening. I mean, I think if we look at the whole cease, the call for ceasefires, and of course, there's many different calls for ceasefires. There's and many different types of calls for ceasefire or humanitarian pauses, some people might call instead of a ceasefire. And I think some of them are pure pacifists. They say any war, no matter who's fighting who, needs to be called off, right? And I think others, you know, might have a different calculation beyond a pure pacifism. Um, when they're calling for, you know, um, stopping in, uh, of, of a war. Yeah, these are really complicated issues. And anyways, friends, um, in any case, we're now in the in the time period where we're looking at thinkers who are alive today. And for our remaining sessions, that'll be the case. People whose thoughts are still evolving. They're still writing op-eds. They're still doing podcasts. And so it's hard to capture all of their views because they're still ongoing. And... Um, we are we're entering some uh, very interesting waters here um, around um, various ethical ethical questions. So, friends, I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Thank you so much for joining us. Just to give you a heads up on what's coming here for us uh, next week, we will be discussing Derrida, uh, Jacques Derrida, very very different than Chomsky, but one that will be interesting nonetheless. Have a wonderful day.